Hi, it's Mark Weiss. We've compiled our most popular podcasts on managing your medical group into this album. Sit back, enjoy, and think about your future. I'll join you at the end. Adopt the company mindset. Like it or not, the practice of medicine is also a business. In many specialties, your competitors are businesses, the so-called national groups and practice management companies. Complain about those aggregators as much as you wish, and there may be a lot to complain about, but the one thing that you cannot criticize is that they fully understand the importance of operating as a business. My advice is that you must adopt the same mindset. Now, before you complain, I'm not telling you to lessen the compassion you feel for your patients, the time and effort you spend developing expertise, or any other aspect of high-quality, high-touch patient care. In fact, I believe that that is your competitive advantage. You're small enough, whether you're a two-person group or a 200-person group, to deliver an experience monopoly to your patients, referring physicians, and facilities. However, your structure has to be that of a business. It has to think beyond slavish devotion to one facility. It has to deal with administrators, referring physicians, and payers as equals, not as service providers. Change your mindset, and significant improvement will follow. You're not running a practice. You're running a business, which is a practice. You are not a physician. You are an entrepreneur in medicine. Either that, or you're an employee, actual or virtual. Go complain. Go unionize. See how far that will get you. Are some partners less equal, but just as liable? Many medical groups operate as partnerships, generally partnerships of professional corporations or similar type state-sanctioned entities. The reason for that structure is simple. It allows maximum flexibility in terms of each owner's management of his or her related business and tax attributes, while preserving a high degree of protection from liability. Note that I said a high degree because there is never a situation in which there can be total protection from liability. At the same time, many groups have compensation plans that reward different partners or different classes of partners differently, such that there is a spread, sometimes a wide spread, in compensation. One complication of this type of structure is that while all partners are jointly and severally liable for the debts of the partnership, some partners are reaping a much greater financial reward. And in some instances, that reward is not tied to the fact that they are devoting more time or harder effort or even smarter effort to the venture. In some cases, this situation is intended and understood by all. But in others, it's a situation arrived at blindly. When did you last look at your partnership agreement? Does it create the liability result that was intended? Are you just taping up problems? I was finally on the plane. The flight was already three hours late to take off. And then the flight attendant announced that one of the overhead luggage bins had a broken latch. 
The plane couldn't take off until it was fixed. A mechanic was called. About 15 minutes later, the mechanic boarded the plane. The overhead bin was emptied. He played around with the latch. Then he pulled out a form and began filling it in, and filling it in, and filling it in, for approximately 20 minutes. Then he pulled out a roll of tape and taped the bin close. That took about 10 seconds. He left. Are you simply taping up your medical group's problems? Quick and easy, that's fine, but destined not to last. If so, the tape is sure to come loose, causing the problem to bang down right again on your head with far greater consequences. Artists, patient satisfaction, and the creation of something out of nothing. It's Friday night. After leaving the restaurant, you turn onto the sidewalk and walk down the street. And there you spot it, an art gallery, so you wander inside. And there you see it on the wall, an original Pablo Kaplonsky, four slashes of red paint over an inverted crocodile. You've got to have it. It's only 14000 The patron who wandered in right behind you is staring at it, too. You hear him exclaim, Soto voce, what crap. They say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So, too, is patient satisfaction. But knowing this means that, first, you have to have a strategy behind satisfying patients, and, second, that you have to maximize the touch points. In other words, adopt consistent tactics that might, because you never know for sure, impact it. But what is satisfaction? How do we measure it? What's the scale? And how, like a sneaky butcher, can we put our finger on it, adding a bit more weight to the pound? As to strategy, who are you trying to please? Everyone? Good luck. A certain type of patient, perhaps one who values your services and pays on time? As to tactics, they're only of real value if they are synced with your strategy. Take, for example, the story of Patty Lund, the dentist from Australia, famous for turning his best practices, dental practice, with its normal reception area, high flow of patients, and so on, that all combined returned good dentist-level income and was at the same time driving him crazy into an incredible boutique practice. No signage, locked entry doors, and a whittled-down patient list. He kept only those patients who valued his services, who paid on time, and who referred other similar patients. They were his real target audience, and he designed a strategy to satisfy them, while at the same time satisfying himself. Lund assigned a permanent care nurse to each patient, who greets them at the door, serves them tea and a pastry, leads them to a private treatment room, assists with the procedure, presents the bill, collects payment, and then sees the patient on his or her way with a goodbye bag of pastries. Result? Lund works half the time, earns a huge multiple over his prior high level, and is, oh my God, happy. And from all accounts, so too are his patients. It may well be that because of your specialty, you've got to take all comers, a, a primary care clinic affiliated with a university teaching program, for example. But the minimum you can do, and you should do more, far more, is to demand that your staff 
and the university create an atmosphere designed to exhibit caring and concern and respect to at least the standards of nearly all comers. If they refuse, they're holding you to meet certain levels of patient satisfaction as surveyed by them is a cruel joke. So, instead of walking into that art gallery, you've walked into your physician's office lobby. No one greets you at the reception window. Rows of mismatched chairs give the impression that the place was decorated with the leftovers after an Ikea sale. There are three or four magazines for the 37 patient seats. A very large computer monitor on a table displays a static stream of text describing some procedure the doctor performs. The monitor also bears a 4x6 sticker placed askew, warning you not to change the channel. How does sitting in that lobby for 40 minutes impact patient satisfaction? What does any of that have to do with the expertise of the medical treatment? Maybe nothing. But people don't separate the elements of an experience in weighing their levels of satisfaction. It's all related. Understand that and play to it. It's not actually cheating. Branded. There's a lot of talk about branding. Almost all of it is nonsense. On the other hand, the definition of branding cited by David Ogilvy, the advertising genius, quote, the intangible sum of a product's attributes, end quote, provides an elegant lesson for medical group leaders. You see, we're not talking of logos or cute comic book drawings or having everyone in the group wear chartreuse. Instead, I want you to focus on the fact that your group is actually and actively branding itself every day whether or not you're aware of it. They're rude. They hate nurses. They're all about never calling me back. The interactions each of your physicians and each of your staff have with patients, with referring physicians, hospital personnel, and others projects your group's attributes. Since you can't stop it from happening, you'd better figure out how to craft it, how to manage it, how to use that opportunity to your group's benefit. Do you measure up or measure down? They looked for a 16-cent phone charge. I know someone who runs an efficient business, or so he tells me. A few days ago, his second-in-administrative command tracked down a 16-cent phone call. It took her quite a while. Emails were sent out to the team and to others with access to the room in which the phone is located. What a waste of time. But those higher up in management want to track every single itsy-bitsy teeny-weeny expense. These are folks with CFO-like thinking, a perfectly clear rearview mirror, and a painted-over windshield. Your business doesn't exist to control costs. It exists to serve your customers. It's efficacy in terms of doing the right thing the right way for your customers that's important. Doing the wrong thing the right way is almost as useless as doing the wrong thing the wrong way. Efficiency is just measuring, including measuring the wrong thing. Any physician or physician group with a contract or payment mechanism that links rewards to measurement needs to provide meaningful input into what it is that is being measured. 
is that thing that's being measured real in terms of the ultimate customer or is it just bureaucratic bullshit? Unfortunately, you also need to come to the realization that some people are completely clueless bureaucratic bumblers who are paid by other fools based upon meaningless measurements. If those idiots control your contract, you've got to dance their dance until you can bring some sanity to what's being measured. Sure, it's not efficacious, but it's short-term efficient in preserving your position. Just don't fool yourself into thinking that it's a long-term solution. Document your deal before you start business. I'm sure most, if not all of you, are familiar with the concept of looking before you leap. And if you were in woodshop in junior high or even high school, then you have probably heard measure twice, cut once. But what about document your deal with your partners before commencing business? Hmm, you haven't heard of that one. Well, you're not the only one. Because that in and of itself is the source of a lot of pain and a lot of my business. But as simple as it seems, many disputes between physicians from office sharing deals gone wrong to disputes over the compensation plan to arguments over who owns what percentage of what, they all arose because nobody took the time to plan those things out beforehand and then to document them. In other words, to put them into a, a contract before the venture starts business. You know, there are only three steps in this process. One, plan it out. Two, memorialize the terms of the deal. Three, do steps one and two before you get to step three, which is embarking on your business. Someone will say that, hey, that takes time. And someone will say, hey, that takes money. Yes and yes. But the effort required and the investment required to do steps one and two before step three pales in comparison to the investment that you are going to have to make to resolve the dispute that is invariably going to arise because you didn't make the effort and you didn't make the investment in the first place. Don't work like a dog? Maybe you should. I'm taking my dog Larry to a play date, which makes me think of a subject that is slightly off topic, at least off the usual topic, and that's taking some time off to have fun. Now, I'm probably as guilty or more guilty than many of you, so maybe this is a form of self-therapy. Let me share my thoughts with you anyway. Here they are. You know, most of the people who listen to my podcast and most of my clients are pretty high achievers. We often tend to work like dogs. But that's a strange expression because dogs don't work like dogs. Dogs take a lot of time off to have fun. I think a lot of what dogs do is sort of work, especially for a herding dog like Larry. He's a Briard. He herds people. I guess that's work for him. He herds our other dogs. I guess that's work for him. And he spends time protecting the herd, that is, chasing squirrels and other living creatures. But he also lies around a lot. He also plays ball. He also spends a lot of time just sitting around and chewing on things. Maybe that's what we should be doing. 
taking some time to have a good time, to enjoy life, to dig our own metaphorical holes in the backyard, to chase the squirrels around and to chew things over about our life. Take some time off. Just don't only work. Life is too short, whether measured in our years or dog years. Efficiency versus efficacy. I've been thinking about the issue of efficiency versus efficacy. Efficiency is simply doing the task the right way, but efficacy has a qualitative difference. Efficacy is doing the right thing the right way. Recently, I was in Charleston, South Carolina. As I was leaving, I was at the airport a bit early. I heard the gate agent, who was moving from gate to gate to assist with departing flights, make a similar announcement each time. It went something like, flight so-and-so to such-and-such place is about to depart. The doors will be closing in five minutes and will not be reopening. Now, years ago, if you got to a plane a little bit late, they reopened the door. After all, the plane was just sitting there. Sometimes it's still sitting there for 20 minutes before backing away from the gate. So why don't they reopen the door? The reason they don't reopen the door is that airlines are now graded for their on-time departures based upon when the gate closes. So they close the door and then pull the jetway back and magically the plane has departed even though it's still sitting there. It's efficient for the airline to close the door and not let crying Ms. Smith on. And I've seen lots of crying Ms. Smiths who've had their entire day of travel all screwed up. It's efficient because they got a wonderful score for having departed on time when all they did was game the system. Think about that next time in the context of healthcare, when you're told that such and such is the measure by which you'll be paid, the measure by which you'll get the extra slice of money or some other higher form of reimbursement, does it really make sense? Is that the right thing to be doing? Consider if it's simply efficient, but not very efficacious. Have you made this mistake concerning your medical practice? I have a friend, a physician, Tom, who's always wanted to become a carpenter. Not the frame a house type of carpenter, but one who builds beautiful cabinets and fine furniture. In fact, I've seen his work and I can attest that he would have become the Leonardo da Vinci of woodworkers. If you wouldn't have gone into medicine, what would you have done? Let's pretend that whatever it was, it was run out of a storefront located in a high-end mall. Maybe your store would sell only Ferragamo shoes selling for 800 to 1,000 a pair. So maybe you've got 250,000 in inventory, maybe another 300,000 in computers, displays, and property. And because you need to provide very high-end service to folks buying those $1,000 shoes, you searched high and low and hired the best staff you could find. You trained them well. But then your lease is terminated. Let's say it's because the mall manager doesn't like you. In fact, the mall manager has leased your store to one of your competitors' soulless souls. Can the mall manager simply lock you out? 
hand soulless the keys and tell them they're free to keep the entire contents of your store and your staff. You'd be on the store to me in five minutes, let's sue. But this is exactly what happens to medical groups when they don't protect their practices, including their staff, from being handed over by a hospital to a competitor as a result of an RFP process or simply as a result of a de facto lockout. For example, consider the fictitiously named Jones Group, a group of cardiothoracic surgeons who've developed a strong multi-physician practice based out of the fictitiously named St. Mark's Community Memorial Hospital. Under pressure from one of the members of the group who seeks more power, the hospital announces that the surgeon, together with some surgeons from across town, will become the new hospital-sponsored group working from the hospital-run cardiothoracic clinic. That new clinic will be located in the office space currently, well, for the next 90 days. That's the without-cost termination period. That, that area leased by the Jones Group. The rest of the Jones Group docs are sent scurrying for new office space and new referral sources or for new jobs across the country. The goodwill of the Jones Group has essentially been pulled right out from under them. Or, for example, consider hospital-based Smith Group that provided services at St. Mark's for 15 years. The hospital wants to consolidate Smith services with that of another hospital-based department and awards the combined contract to another group. The new group offers to hire all of Smith Group stocks except for its shareholders who are sent packing. There are many tools available to protect your store from being turned over to the new tenants. Don't just wait for it to happen and then decide to do something about it. The damage will already be done. You'll have made it easier for your relationship to be terminated, easier for your business to be destroyed. Heroin, hooked on big data. The hospital CFO was hooked on heroin the heroine of big data. Big data, gotta have it, gotta manipulate it. Let's measure everything. Whatever we can measure improves. What bullshit. What are you in business to do? What do your customers need? What do your customers expect? How do you deliver what's important to them? How do you go beyond that to delight them? Not everything in your business that can be measured influences those outcomes. Do we send condolence cards to the parents of newborns because their family per capita income dropped precipitously upon little Johnny's birth? Is the quality of healthcare improved by putting all patients into large wards because 200 to a room is more efficient than one to a room? Sure, some things can be measured, but they are seldom the real product. Those who can, do. Those who can't, measure. Do what counts, not just what you can count. How to Increase Medical Practice Income Many years ago, I met someone who ran a food concession business at a large public venue, a county fairground. 
The prices that he could charge, say for a hot dog, were set by contract with the county. His costs, though, were determined by the market. As you might imagine, he soon got squeezed, squeezed hard. Costs rose while prices remained constrained. Chances are you're in the same business. You're just selling healthcare instead of hot dogs. Your prices are set by way of contracts with payers, are subject to the limits of government reimbursement, or are tied to provisions of exclusive contracts requiring plan participation. In other types of businesses, owners can grow their enterprise by increasing the price, by acting to stimulate their customers' frequency of purchase, or the size of their customers' purchase. Entrepreneurial physicians in more elective-focused specialties, dermatology, for example, can stimulate the frequency of patient visits and can venture into non-insured lines of business that present opportunities for premium pricing and for multiple procedures. Those physicians in less elective or non-elective practices may lack the easy ability to increase patients' out-of-pocket expenditures or even frequency of purchase. You know, for example, ER docs can't easily offer a special on one's second broken arm. But they do have the opportunity to stay on top of renegotiating their payer agreements and in seeking to expand the scope of their practices to other offices and other facilities. That is, as long as the reimbursement at those locations warrants the expansion. And for all medical groups, there are ways to deconstruct what it is that you do and then construct new lines of businesses from it. The alternative is to become a de facto public utility, but without the ability to use monopoly power to obtain a rate increase. Heck, that's like selling price-regulated hot dogs at the county fair. How to use red teams to strengthen your business. I really plan to buy, but as soon as I walked 13 feet into the car showroom, I knew that they'd make no sale today. The three salesmen were huddled around a small TV watching football. None made eye contact. None even said a word. Red Team isn't a Tom Clancy novel. It's the broad description of checking for your business's weaknesses and faults by way of a team tasked with countering or challenging you. For example, secret shoppers reconnoiter how they're treated and the ambiance of the store or other location. Or a team of white hat hackers tries to breach a company's IT system. Or a committee is charged with taking the devil's advocate approach to your business plans. The applications are legion, but you get the idea, I hope. You can use a red team strategy to discover your medical group's weaknesses and to correct them before someone else takes advantage of them. Task three or four of your group's members to play the competitor. Let them plan to disrupt your business relationship with a hospital or referral source. Or bring in someone from the outside to evaluate your group's organizational and governance structures. Appoint someone to act as the proxy for the hospital CEO and run a mock evaluation of the contract with your group. Your customers know a lot about your weaknesses. The problem is that they don't often tell you until it's too late. 
that's the point at which they become someone else's customer. Your competitors want to capture your opportunities and seek to take advantages of your faults. In the normal course of business, we all tend to be blind to our own weaknesses and faults. Red teaming is a strategy to make those defects evident. I wasn't a secret shopper in that car showroom. I didn't tell the dealership owner a thing. I simply left and drove 27 miles to their closest competitor and bought a Range Rover from them. How you can apply the 80-20 rule. I was thinking about the 80-20 rule, the Pareto principle. That's the notion that, in general, 80% of results come from 20% of the efforts. There are many other ways you can explain it, such as 20% of the employees in a company produce 80% of the profit, or even 20% of your referral sources produce 80% of your practices or your business's income. There are a lot of different ways of looking at what that distribution or observation means to you and your business. This rule, this observation, was first noticed by the, the guy after whom it's named, Wilfredo Pareto. He was an economist who noticed that in England, 20% of the population owned 80% of the wealth. As he went back and looked at different periods of time, he discovered the same sort of distribution. Of course, this is an observation. It's not a hard and fast rule. In fact, if you recall those protests blaming the 1% as having ownership of so much of society's assets, you'll see that in some instances, a much smaller percentage than 20% owns a hugely significant portion of assets. Likewise, it's entirely possible that a much smaller percentage than 20% of your referral sources is responsible for a huge percentage of your business's income. There are many ways for you to apply this 80-20 notion in connection with your practice or business. The simplest is just to pay attention to power distributions, to how a small percentage of customers, referral sources, and relationships make a huge difference and benefit for you. Next, figure out what the individuals or entities comprising that small percentage have in common. Then ask yourself how you can find more of that sort. Ask how you can devote more time and effort to those types as opposed to all of your relationships. In other words, how can you milk the notion that disproportionately powerful small percentages impact your business? Pay attention. Spend some time thinking about how harnessing the Pareto Principle can be of tremendous value to you. I went to a food fair. Can referral sources find you? I went to a food fair, you know, one of those taste of the fill-in-the-blank fairs where restaurants of all sorts sell sample-sized portions of their food. The whole idea for the restaurants is to get people interested in coming over to their real place. They're never going to make any significant money selling samples for three bucks each. Most of the restaurants sold their samples from booths. A few had fancy trailers with their names emblazoned on them. But the booths were really plain, like the kind of elementary school fair that sells hot dogs or at which you lob a ping pong ball to try to get it into a fishbowl to, to win a goldfish. 
that might not be PC to do that anymore, but you're probably old enough to remember back when it was okay to do that. Anyway, these restaurants must have paid a lot to rent space at the taste of. And in some cases, they probably didn't make much or any profit at the $3 price tag. But what hit me is that while the booths had the restaurant's names in them, only a handful out of probably a hundred had their addresses. Good food? Yes. Smiling faces? Yes. Want to actually go to their restaurant and to pay more for a whole lunch or a whole dinner? Absolutely. But where in heck are they located? So what are you doing to let people know where to find you? You're probably not doing doctoring at the local taste of or even at a health fair. But what I mean is, what are you doing so that potential new facilities or potential new referral sources or potential new patients can find out about you and where you're located? Even if you're an employee of some hospital or, or of some large medical group, how can potential other employers find out about you? What are you doing to advertise your fair? Is there this disconnect within your medical group? If you want to go to the movies, but your spouse wants to go to a play, you've reached an impasse. But that's simply a minor issue. One that can, of course, grow. But if you always want to go to the movies, and if your spouse never does, while your spouse always wants to go to plays, but you never do, then you have a much bigger problem. Now, shift this over to any business organization. In your case, probably your medical group. The same dynamic appears when one partner or one set of partners wants to move the business in one direction, while the others want to go in another, or even more likely, don't want to go in any direction at all. If this were your weekend basketball team, you'd be concerned. But it's your life. Treat it just as seriously. Consider a 20-some person medical group with polarized groups of members. At one end of the spectrum, some of the owners want to expand the group to other sites and to aggressively compete for new business. At the other end, no one wants to expend a cent. Just keep the distributions to the owners as high as possible. We all know that there are tectonic shifts impacting the healthcare industry. If your group can't develop a strategy for its future because of internal dissension, then by default, you're allowing someone else the hospital, the government, your competitors, to choose a future for you. And I can guarantee you that that future won't be very pretty. Resolve the impasse or resolve to choose another career path because this one's a dead end. Is your group a slow loris or a sitting duck? Years ago, the Santa Barbara Zoo had a fascinating animal on display, a slow loris. A type of primate, the rainforest creature, evades predators by moving very, very, very slowly. In fact, even slower than that. Its predators spot prey as a result of movement. The slow loris almost stands still while moving. Unlike slow lorises, glacial speed is not a medical group's friend. Your predators have an easier time spotting your weaknesses when you're standing still. Your leaders gain nothing by simply protecting the status quo. Stop thinking of slow lorises and start thinking about ducks, sitting ducks that is. We've held the contract for 20 years. The Jones Group always sends the referrals to us, 
Bob went to boarding school with the CEO. We're in a protected position. In an isolated sense, there's truth in each of those statements, and there's nothing inherently wrong with reciting them. But in connection with the functioning of the many interrelated systems in which these relationships exist, they are not determinative. As Peter Drucker said, because the purpose of business is to create a customer, the business's enterprise has two and only two basic functions, marketing and innovation. Going beyond that point, the goal is to retain the customer, have him, her, or it buy more of your services, all while you are marketing to other potential customers and creating new circles. But without change through innovation, without expansion of your service offerings, you become close to calcified. And while there's safety for slow lorises in holding still, it's the kiss of death for medical groups. Is your group running on autopilot? I read a quote from the owner of a private boat rescue service, uh, sort of like a floating auto club who said that they have a rule of thumb. The boats with the most electronics are those most likely to run aground. That's because those boat owners place so much faith in the electronic reports of location and depth that they fail to actually look where they're going. A similar situation affects medical groups. Take, for example, a group that receives comprehensive billing service reports replete with dashboards illustrating all types of practice metrics. All appears to be not just okay, but glowingly wonderful. The group is on the right course. But those reports may or may not be correct. And even if they are true, they can only provide a partial picture of the group's business world because they do not contain all of the essential information necessary to lead the group. Consider the case of a hospital-based medical group that's in trouble. Dissatisfaction among the rank and file over the assignment of cases and the amount of compensation leads to an eruption over leadership. The hospital is on the group's case, pressing for a major change in structure. Bring more fairness to the group, make everyone a partner, and perhaps do a national search for new leadership. But the group's leaders say that the dashboard indicates that everything is okay. My unfortunate observation is that this type of problem, in varying costume, is far too common. Group leaders, and sometimes all group members, are seduced by reports that they perhaps don't understand, or which perhaps don't actually make sense, or report the truth, or they place all of their faith on reports which are highly accurate, but which contain no data on matters outside the scope of those reports such as issues involving compensation, the relationship between group physicians and hospital staff, and issues of importance to referring physicians and to patients. Just as on the sea, the data that's collected and reported is of value, but you've got to keep your eyes open as well. Mistakes happen. There's a divergence of opinion on the question of whether or not to apologize or to express sorrow over a healthcare error. 
Will it lead to increased chances of malpractice litigation and be construed as an admission of liability? 36 states, including California and Texas, have enacted laws protecting certain expressions of sorry and remorse from being admissible in court. Recently, I was on an American Airlines flight. A flight attendant carrying a tray with a filled red wine glass lost her balance and dumped the wine on my shoulder, down my back, and, well, onto, well, uh, my um, seat. She immediately and profusely apologized and said that she'd get me a cleaning voucher. I smiled and told her that it was okay. She told me that most passengers would have screamed at her or threatened to get her fired. Look, mistakes happen. And it's often how the mistake maker, not the victim, reacts that makes the difference in the outcome. If your state immunizes apologies, does your group have a policy on when, how, and what to say? If not, why not? No meeting of the minds. Is your medical group slowing down success, wasting time in management meetings? Imagine a group that holds a meeting of its bloated board each week. Over a dozen people sit at the table, each putting in his three or four cents worth, even when he or she has no sense. Protecting fiefdoms, feigning expertise, micromanaging. Micromanagement by an individual is bad enough, but micromanagement by committee is sheer hell. Sure, there are a few legitimate reasons for groups to have leadership meetings, whether face-to-face or electronically, such as when you need to pull together a number of ideas to plan a new initiative. But the majority of meetings, those devoted to exchanging information, are a pure waste of time. Send a memo send an email, or even a note by carrier pigeon, but don't waste time and meet. Sure, business decisions require some thinking, but the question is who should be doing the thinking? And the answer is as few people as possible. And those people, those leaders of your group must be empowered to make decisions. That is empowered to lead. It doesn't matter whether your leaders are elected or chosen as a result of drawing the short stick. Heck, just throw a dart at a list of your group's owners and anoint the Holy One as the leader. Any of those is better than management by committee. Nosocomial infection consumes hospital. Stop the spread to your practice. We usually think of nosocomial infection, one contracted from the environment or staff of a healthcare facility, in terms of the impact on patients. But what about those infections that consume the facility itself? Okay, I'm not talking about bacteria, but I am talking about viruses, viruses of the administrator's minds and of the facility's business model. We plan our business ventures to succeed, and that's a good thing. But at the same time, or at least for more than just a few moments, you should also think about planning for failure. Not of your business, but of the hospital to which it's linked. 
The idea is to avoid the spread of infection to your business. Over the years, I've worked with hospital-based groups working at facilities that have closed. I've also worked with office-based practices in medical office buildings located on or near the campuses of hospitals that have closed. What steps have you taken to protect your business in the event that the hospital or other facility with which you are linked closes? Certainly for hospital-based groups, my long-standing advice that you must do business at more than one facility holds true. I generally talk about that in the context of the impact of the loss of an exclusive contract. But the complete loss of the facility by reason of its closure has the same impact. It moots your group's reason to exist unless it has significant other business. For office-based practices, the closure of the facility at which you're based may or may not be as fatal. Sure, you can get staff privileges at another facility, but officing in an orphaned building next door to a boarded-up facility with weeds growing in its former flower beds can ruin your practice. When negotiating your lease, consider having an option to terminate in the event that the hospital closes. You admit or treat patients at the hospital or other facility in order to make them well. But there is a huge effort at that facility to make sure that their own environment doesn't kill them. Make the same effort to protect the life of your practice. Nosocomial infection consumes hospital. Stop the spread to your practice. We usually think of nosocomial infection, one contracted from the environment or staff of a healthcare facility, in terms of the impact on patients. But what about those infections that consume the facility itself? Okay, I'm not talking about bacteria, but I am talking about viruses, viruses of the administrator's minds and of the facility's business model. We plan our business ventures to succeed, and that's a good thing. But at the same time, or at least for more than just a few moments, you should also think about planning for failure. Not of your business, but of the hospital to which it's linked. The idea is to avoid the spread of infection to your business. Over the years, I've worked with hospital-based groups working at facilities that have closed. I've also worked with office-based practices in medical office buildings located on or near the campuses of hospitals that have closed. What steps have you taken to protect your business in the event that the hospital or other facility with which you are linked closes? Certainly for hospital-based groups, my long-standing advice that you must do business at more than one facility holds true. I generally talk about that in the context of the impact of the loss of an exclusive contract. But the complete loss of the facility by reason of its closure has the same impact. It moots your group's reason to exist unless it has significant other business. For office-based practices, the closure of the facility at which you're based may or may not be as fatal. Sure, you can get staff privileges at another facility, but officing in an orphaned building next door to a boarded-up facility with weeds growing in its former flower beds can ruin your practice. When negotiating your lease, consider having an option to terminate in the event that the hospital closes. You admit or treat patients at the hospital or other facility in order to make them well. 
but there's a huge effort at that facility to make sure that their own environment doesn't kill them. Make the same effort to protect the life of your practice. Not a smart call. As a Wall Street Journal article recounted, Japanese manufacturers, once the world's leaders in electronic goods and especially in cell phone tech, lost big in the switch to smartphones. The author attributed their fall to the manufacturer's inward focus. They concentrated their major technological advancement on televisions and, as to the cell phone, simply focused on the peculiar features successful in their home market. The iPhone and its smartphone progeny threw them for a loop, both in connection with phone sales and in the way that the smartphone has impacted the manufacturer's other major product lines, electronic game machines, digital cameras. The same message plays itself out every day for medical groups that concentrate all of their business firepower on one or a very small handful of business opportunities, from single-facility exclusive contracts to specialty practices dependent on one large referral source. It also plays itself out when groups exclude from consideration any experience from outside their group. The smartphone has conquered Japan. What is lurking just outside of your group? things Magic Mountain taught me. I still remember the smile on Steve Cunningham's face. High school summer vacation, thoughts of sand, sun, and surf. Yet back to reality. We were applying for jobs at Magic Mountain, an amusement park. Employees got free passes to the park. Out from the interview he came, right operator. Now it was my turn. What job would I get? Roller coaster? Spinning bucket? Fifteen minutes later, due to my valuable experience at McDonald's the previous summer, it was cook. Apparently, anyone, or so I told myself, could put someone in a roller coaster car, but few could cook hamburgers and fries and, thanks to my mom's training, could also make tacos, burritos, and pizza. Yet that summer was a petri dish of customer service and other business education. Here are 4.5 of the lessons that I learned. 1. If you hire right, people don't need to be managed. They are not horses. They need to understand what it is they are supposed to do. They need initial training. Then they need to know that their supervisor has their back, assuming they're doing the job within acceptable parameters. If they stray, guide and repeat. 2. Customers can be rude and make messes, like stomping on ketchup packets. Yet, without customers, there is no business. So smile and be kind. But if they're drunk and throwing things, call for security. 3. Employees will screw with each other. One guy had the habit of throwing ice cubes into the fryer. Get rid of troublemakers before someone is burned by flying grease. You failed at number one but at least you can succeed at number three. It's very easy. Four, 
Ice machines make cool water, not ice cubes, when the temperature inside a restaurant approaches that of the sun. Things break and go wrong. You need to learn to expect it and must have plans to deal with it. Oh, and number 4.5, free isn't always free. A free pass to some place that you spend 40 hours a week at isn't free. It's a reminder of broken ice machines, scorching heat, and rubberized blobs of ketchup. Think how you're motivating your employees. After that summer, I went to Magic Mountain two or three times. It wasn't too much fun. A medical group in motion. People often cite Newton's first law as something akin to an object in motion tends to stay in motion with the same speed and in the same direction. That reminds me of many medical groups that believe that their relationships will continue and continue and continue. For example, their relationship with referring physicians or with a facility under, say, an exclusive contract. But that same law contains a caveat. The object only stays in that motion until it's acted upon by an unbalanced force. In business life, there are constant unbalanced forces. They're called competition, creative destruction, and plain old unbalanced individuals. Their mission, known or unknown, is to insert themselves or someone else into your relationships. Many medical groups exhibit a second Newtonian tendency. They tend to devote all of their motion to the day-to-day activities of patient care. It then becomes difficult for them, from the inside, to create the force necessary to change direction, whether outright in respect of embarking on a new strategy, or even only to the extent that they make the necessary effort away from patient care activities to consider their future and necessary strategies to get there. For many of you, it's time to break free of your current situation. A tear in the fabric of medical groups. Have you ever tried to stretch pizza dough, pull it too much or too thin, and you end up with a tear? Many medical groups suffer from the same effect as a result of differing camps within their ownership ranks. Some members are focused on immediate returns, the amount of their paychecks, and the workload required. They're not interested in investing money back into the business of the practice. Other members realize that unless their medical group takes steps to build its future, someone else will be dictating that future. As a result, like with the pizza dough, a tear develops in the fabric of the group. Groups need to determine why they're in business. Then, when they bring in additional owners, they need to assure that they share the same mindset. If the mindset is to create a business that's larger than simply serving a hospital, then they'll strategize for a future that includes growing a strong, independent practice. If it's simply to maximize current income, then there's not much need to strategize for the future because the group won't have Risky behavior and healthcare businesses. When we think of risky behavior, 
we usually think of personal acts, like the definition used in connection with a children's services workers' training course in the London borough of Richmond-upon-Thames. Risky behaviors are those that potentially expose people to harm or significant risk of harm, which will prevent them from reaching their full potential. Risky behavior impacts medical groups and healthcare businesses, too. Sometimes this is a result of the personal acts or omissions of an employee, as in medical malpractice. Other times it's the result of the acts or omissions of the business itself, perhaps at the level of its board of directors. Risk can't be eliminated. It's inherent in any business venture. In fact, in business, there's no reward without risk. But risk can be managed, and it can be reduced. Consider insurance, for example. You pay premiums which are not for nothing, even if you never have a claim. That's because the risk of a claim was reduced to the extent of coverage. In like manner, there are many other actions that can be taken to otherwise reduce risk within the organization. These actions have a multiplier effect because they both reduce the potential for loss and they increase the value of the entity itself. Take, for example, the situation in which a medical group's organizational documents have unwittingly created a ticking time bomb by couching notions of compensation in terms usually reserved for concepts of ownership. An event sparks the situation, and the next thing you know, the employees claim they are owners and demand their share of profits, or even worse, of proceeds from the sale of the group. Other examples are as numerous as there are instances of business organization and business operations, from the structure of a deal that raises the specter of violation of the federal anti-kickback statute, to seemingly innocuous representations and warranties contained in an employment agreement. Left to the vagaries of fate, those and other risks can come back to destroy both current profit, that is, create staggering losses, as well as the value of your business. Call it insurance, or call it preventive medicine, but call for it all the same, starting with a comprehensive audit of your current situation. Otherwise, you're wittingly exposing your business to harm that will prevent you from reaching your full potential. Speak truth to numbers. Don't get your medical group or healthcare business lost in big data. Bureaucratic sorts are drawn to numbers because numbers can be gathered. They can be processed. They can be manipulated all with the goal of lifetime employment for those bean counters. I'm not saying that numbers aren't important, like those following a dollar sign, but only that very little of what's important for your success is capable of numerical measurement in any meaningful way. Consider the advice of W. Edwards Deming, the man credited by the Japanese as revitalizing their manufacturing economy following World War II. A numbers and process man if there ever were one. Yet Deming said that over 97% of events that affect a company's results can't be measured. That leaves a mere less than 3%
capable of measurement at all. And for those things that can be measured, what does their measurement mean? To paraphrase H. Thomas Johnson, the professor and accounting historian, quantitative measures describe something. They don't explain anything. Your success depends on a myriad of interpersonal relationships, on hiring the right staff, on doing the right thing, the humanity side of business, not the bean counting side, not the easy side. Why is such and such a measure for incentive payment? What does being in the 75th percentile actually mean? Does a medical staff satisfaction survey reveal what caused the satisfaction? Don't be seduced by numbers. The truth is that Peter Drucker never said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Someone else made it up. Don't allow your performance to be measured by meaningless measurements. Don't manage by meaningless measurements. Speak truth to numbers. Sun Tzu and Group Strategy Sun Tzu, the ancient Chinese military strategist, wrote that he will win whose army is animated by the same spirit throughout all its ranks. Although running a medical group just sometimes seems like war, the essence of that advice is completely applicable. Too often, treating all group physicians as colleagues entitled to a high degree of autonomy, groups sometimes ignore the fact that, to succeed, all group members, from the leader to the junior-most member, must conduct themselves in alignment with the group's overall strategy. Of course, this is obvious to anyone in the context of everyday real-world interactions. Consider, for example, your inclination to return to a restaurant after receiving inattentive service from a waiter who was obviously simply going through the paces or from one who quite obviously was unhappy working there. Why would you think that it's impossible that one or more of your group members are just going through the paces or, even worse, are signaling that they are unhappy? What are they doing to your group's ability to compete, even to your group's ability to continue to exist? The Four P's of Medical Group Success Marcus Limonis of the TV show The Prophet says that there are three P's to business success. One, people. Two, product. And three, procedures. But in terms of medical group success, there are actually four P's. One, people. Two, product. That is, your services. Three, procedures. And four, perception. The first, people, is clearly the most important. No matter how great your product, that is, your services in the context of your medical group, if you fail to hire the right people, it will be as if you were trying to run a marathon with a 50-pound kettlebell strapped to your left ankle. In many industries, employers can hire for the right personality, not for the person's past employment, training, or technical competence. For most positions in healthcare, that's not going to cut it. However, the concept of hiring only those people who fit within the group's culture, which should be a culture of happy people giving their all to deliver the utmost care, still applies. And on the other side of the coin, if you discover that you have someone who doesn't fit in, 
who causes trouble, who is disruptive, who upsets your customers, no matter how you define customers, then they have to go and they have to go now. Your product, that is your services in the context of your medical group, has to be top-notch. Simply put, it's the price of admission in the context of medical group success. It's required to get you in the game. Alone, just like any single P, it won't get you to the finish line. But many medical groups appear to have snuck in through the back door. They tout great care, but they deliver something less. It's what I call a promise delivery gap. Make sure that you've come in through the front door. Procedures. Well, procedures are what keeps those great people that you've brought on board engaged in the proper work. Procedures aren't cookie-cutter recipes for patient care. Rather, depending on the context, they're either broad themes allowing for flexibility or they're tight requirements. But either way, the expectations and the boundaries are clear. For example, the concept of themes applies to many instances of the group's physician's treatment of patients, while tight requirements apply to situations such as making sure that all claims are filed within X number of hours after a patient encounter. And last, perception. Fortunately or unfortunately, perception plays a very large role. It's the ribbon and the bow that ties your people products, and procedures together into a wonderful package, or it's the rope and noose with which your business is put out of its misery. In the context of the four Ps, perception is the totality of the image projected by your group, as interpreted by the minds of those outside of the group. That would include patients, referral sources, facilities, and payers. Depending on your practice, it can also include other slightly more remote third parties, such as the local community, especially in a smaller geographic setting, a a rural town, for instance. Of course, depending on the skill of creating perception, it can play on a national or even worldwide basis. Take the Mayo Clinic, for example. Perception is like a balloon. It's easy to build up, but it's fragile too. Very easy to damage. A dropped referral? A late start, a short temper, can pop the perception of your medical group in a heartbeat. That's why it's so important to hire right, fire fast, enact procedures to assure and monitor delivery, and to constantly understand, fortunately or unfortunately, that perception is reality. The Magic Hat and Medical Group Strategy When my son Noah was little, he told me that he had a magic hat. When he wore it, he could see the future. Most medical group leaders could use a hat like that. Not that it's really needed. In many cases, the writing on the wall is clear. Hospitals are building monopolies, employing and otherwise aligning physicians. National groups are competing as if on steroids. And many local medical groups feel as if they're sailing in a thimble, facing down a battleship. So, what's your strategy? I hope it's not to float with the tide. That's almost everyone else's strategy. Oh, you're wearing your magic hat. Transparency within medical groups. 
secrecy, data gathering, keeping safe from those who want to do you harm. These are hot topics in the news, but I'm not speaking from a political point of view, at least not this time. Instead, I'm talking about protecting your medical group's financial and performance data and about guarding its yet unfolded strategies. In particular, I'm talking about the question of how much transparency should exist within your group. The answer requires a particular balance, one that must be determined on a group-by-group -group basis. There's no hard and fast rule. However, keep in mind that the most successful groups, the strategic groups, are not run as clubs. They're not completely transparent. On the other hand, sharing some amount of performance data across the group, whether you see that as only owner physicians or as all providers, can be a tremendous motivator in the development of a cohesive team. But pure matters of strategy and your group's essential financial information should be held much closer to the vest. Those entrusted with it should be bound by fiduciary duty and by confidentiality agreements. Unfortunately, any of your inner circle might be tomorrow's competitor. There's no advantage to be gained in claiming to be the most transparent while actually being anything but. There's also no advantage to disclosing willy-nilly what should be protected information. Instead, find the right balance for your group and clearly establish walls beyond which information is closely guarded against attack, both from outside and from inside your group. Trapped inside the box. A few weeks ago, I attended a funeral. I couldn't help that my mind wandered to the fact that many physicians and physician group leaders run their practice's business operation as if they were locked up in a box, sorry to be so morbid, coffin-like, in that they just keep on doing what they've always done in terms of treating patients, essentially ignoring many, if not all, real business issues. And they'll keep on doing the same until they run out of air. In the macro sense, leaving the business issues to someone else resulted in managed care and may eventually lead to a national health plan extending, decreasing Medicare-like reimbursement across the board. In the micro sense, leaving the business issues to someone else threatens the viability of your practice. It's not outside of the box thinking that's required. It's busting out of the box. Understanding price, value, and how to use them. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. If value to you exceeds the price you pay, you got a good deal. For the seller in that same transaction, if value, that is the price you, the buyer, paid, exceeds the seller's price, that is what it costs the seller to provide the item or service, the seller got a good deal too. Both the buyer and the seller are better off. It's magic. So what's the practical application of this for you? In order to capture more business, 
You either have to reduce your price, not my favorite, or increase the value you provide, my favorite. Unless you're selling a true physical commodity, staplers or stethoscopes, for example, in which mass production leads to lower per unit cost, competing on the basis of price is a fool's game. Your competitor will simply lower its price by a few cents, a few dollars, or a few thousand dollars, depending on the scale, and the downward spiral begins. Instead, focus on how to increase the value you provide. While price is easy to see, Botox treatment this week, only $1.99. Value is far more slippery, amorphous, individual, and particular. Heck, you've probably seen my picture on the videos on this website, but there's no way I'm going to buy a Botox treatment, even if it were $99. A Ferrari, though, that's another issue. But why when a Toyota would do, some might ask. Well, that's what makes price and value interesting. Accordingly, price and value can be used to attract, and they can be used to repel. Repel? Absolutely. The plastic surgeon whose fee for some procedure is 4X is not competing with the plastic surgeon down the block whose price is simply X. The value message sent by the low price attracts some, even many, but it repels those who evaluate value differently. Our first plastic surgeon doesn't want those folks coming in the door. The second one welcomes them in. If you're running your own practice or business, or if you're the leader of a group, you can use these principles multiple ways. Although many believe that healthcare pricing, at least on the payer side, is relatively fixed, it's not. Some providers and some facilities have created value, or the perception of value, which is really the same thing, all value is perceptual, which leads to increased levels of reimbursement. In the hospital-based world, some groups have lost contracts to groups which competed on the basis of lower or no fees to the facility, while other groups have maintained or increased the value proposition such the hospital sees far lesser value in a competitor's free. And for all groups, the value proposition from prestige to the so-called soft factors such as group culture can trump compensation in attracting sterling recruits. To Oscar Wilde, a cynic was someone who knew the price of everything but the value of nothing. So don't be a cynic. Understand both price and value and how they are inextricably linked. Unifying your group. As hard as it is for me to say, it's been 40 years since I had my summer job at McDonald's. Yet, after all this time, I remember some of the standards enforcing mechanisms the franchise used from written instructions on how each of the food items was to be prepared, to cards bearing sayings such as, when you have time to gripe, you have time to wipe. And my perennial favorite, when you have time to lean, you have time to clean. No, I'm not suggesting that your medical group should have cheat cards as detailed as this. But your group needs to portray an image, an image of a unified group, and it takes work for you as a group leader to accomplish that. All of this accrues to your benefit or to your detriment when you're contracting with the hospital 
or contracting with your employed or subcontracted physicians. On the other hand, if you think that these little details are unimportant, then stop to wonder why McDonald's, which certainly doesn't make the best hamburger, sells billions of them. Not convinced? Then I want you to know that your competitors thank you for making it easier for them. What do physician groups and vending machines have in common? Some physician groups operate like vending machines. Instead of Cokes or 7-Ups, efforts are placed into the machine and are dispensed to patients. Payments go into the slot, but are emptied regularly. Cash is seldom allowed to remain undistributed. During the right times and under the right circumstances, there's nothing wrong with having a practice that operates like that. In fact, in some situations, it's the dream setup. But in other situations, the focus on current distributions of cash becomes addictive and destructive like the other kind of Coke. For many medical groups, this is one of those times. Changes in healthcare are drastically affecting their operations. If a medical group is to do anything other than remain totally reactive to change, to let change happen to it, to be a victim of change, the group needs to be able to invest in its future. It needs to seek out opportunity and restructure as needed to capture it, to capture that opportunity. But it can't do that if there's no cash to fund it. Pulling cash back in from the partners or shareholders is always more difficult than not distributing some of it in the first place. Don't shortchange your own future. What does partnership really mean? What does partnership mean in a medical group? What does it mean to you? What does it mean for your group? What does it mean if you're setting up a medical group? I recently heard from someone, a, a partner in a law firm, who was recounting a story of another lawyer who years ago had lost a major client. As a result, he realized, and he was right, that the writing was on the wall. He'd soon be tossed out of the partnership. Also years ago, when I was a partner in a larger firm, one of the partners made a mistake, not a legal malpractice mistake, not even a mistake in judgment. It was just a simple human mistake, the kind of mistake that anyone might make. Within days, the majority of the partners had voted to terminate him. We often strive to become a partner, a shareholder, a member, whatever the arrangement is, to attain the golden ring, the, the equity position. But seldom do we ask, what it means when we get there. I once had a partner who quipped that it was going to be cheaper to make Sally a partner because then Sally would simply receive a draw and we could determine the rest of her compensation at the end of the year instead of having her remain a very senior associate, in which case we would be required to make a commitment up front as to her base compensation package and probable bonus. None of those stories is about what most people would call partnership. Instead, they're stories of business entities that, although styled as partnerships, are in reality just a collection of individuals with a large dose of the notion of fair-weather friends tossed in for good measure. Are the ties that bind one way or two 
from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, or at least until we decide to toss you out on your ass. Does that type of structure create a business model designed to succeed in the future, or is it simply situational? The stories, of course, demonstrate the precarious nature of not-too-solid partnership from the partner perspective. But the issue is the same from the perspective of the partnership itself. What sort of entity have you built, if it's an entity at all? What sort of message does its structure send to the partners and to those who might desire to become partners? How does all of this bode for the entities and for your future? What's your business horizon? Covenants not to compete. Cultivating new business opportunities. Are those costs or investments? It all depends on your business horizon. Like the visible horizon, the apparent line that separates the earth from the sky, your business horizon is directly tied to height. In the physical realm, the average-sized person sees the horizon out at approximately 2.9 miles. But climb up a bit higher than 300 feet, and your horizon moves out to approximately 22 miles. At the top of Mount Everest, your horizon moves out to 209 miles. Metaphorically speaking, what's your group's business horizon? If you're only able to see until the end of the year, parceling out of all dollars remaining in the group, everything will appear as a cost. Your future is self-limited. Many of your competitors, especially the large ones, have bigger dreams, bigger goals, bigger strategies. What other groups see as costs, they see as investments propelling them forward. The irony is that, at the outset, height of thinking has nothing to do with business size. Rather, it's thinking that determines size and success. Change your thinking. What's your medical practice's value? In connection with healthcare M&A deals, there's a lot of talk about value. Note that I didn't say fair market value, which generally doesn't have any real linkage to the market, isn't of any real value other than to cover one's ass or convince you to settle for less, and is only fair if you've devoted your life to bureaucratic pursuits, that is, to destroying real value. In the real world, your practice is only worth what a buyer, if one exists, will pay for your practice at the time you want to sell it. If no buyer is interested, then the practice's value is simply academic. If a potential buyer can pull the relationships that underlie your practice out from under you, then there's no reason for it to become an actual buyer. Value is something that you play a large role in creating. And if you're smart, simultaneously expanding and protecting. Who's driving your practice's bus? I had a quirky law school professor who, when the Socratic method was leading the discussion either in circles or to nowhere fast, would throw up his hands and almost yell, Hey, wait, let me drive the bus. He'd then recenter the discussion to comport with his vision 
of the lessons to be learned. For many medical practices, it appears as if no one is driving the bus. Instead, the practice operates like a runaway bus. Yes, the providers are seeing patients, but where is it headed? Instead of a map with a clearly marked final destination, it's just rolling along. Whether you're a solo practitioner or the leader of a 500-person group, your most important job in terms of success isn't patient care. That's expected of you as the price of entry. Rather, it's owning the vision of your practice and of its business. That is, it's driving your own bus. If you don't take the wheel, your competitors, your employees, the hospital, the government, and the payers would be happy to drive it for you, but I can guarantee that you won't like the destination that they have in mind. Who's driving the management bus? Any business, whether you run a compounding pharmacy, a large anesthesia group, a a small radiology group, or something else, has to have leadership, the driver of the bus. You assemble a great team, you toss them all onto that bus, 10 of them, 20 of them, or 180 of them. That's a really big bus, but you can't let them all drive. But often you do. That's a huge problem. The result is that you tie your business's hands behind its back, either through consensus, in which everyone gets in their two cents worth, and in which a proposed decision becomes watered down, Or you actually have a committee, a large dysfunctional committee. The classic example of the second situation is the group that has a management committee that is so large that every decision is watered down and takes months and months of paralysis from analysis. I've even heard things akin to, we can't meet to discuss this issue until after summer because a couple of people won't be here for any management meeting from May through September. That's no way to run a business. You may think that you are being polite and kind and inclusive, but what you're really doing is screwing yourself. Why document the value of a group member's interest? They say that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. But the value of a physician's interest in a medical group is in the eyes of the holder, the holder of the pen, so to speak, those in control of the terms of the buy-in and buy-out provision of your group's shareholders or partnership agreement. So, what's a membership interest worth? No time to think about this now? Fine with me. But it's not going to be fine for you, because sooner rather than later, someone is going to leave the group and they are going to demand their fair share. They'll claim that the group really doesn't exist. It was just a pass-through and they want their accounts receivable. Or worse, they'll claim the group and you, yes, you personally, owe them a fiduciary duty to schedule them and to collect their accounts receivable. So where's my money? What is the formula for determining value? Does that formula trigger or destroy other rights and privileges that the group wants to assert in its organizational documents? Think about it now. It's better than worrying about it or being sued later. Why saving 
won't save. We've got to stop ordering rollerball pens. Just order those cheap Bics. That's what one of my former bosses, years and years ago, pontificated as part of his cost-cutting plan to save the firm. But cutting costs is no way to improve any business for other than the very short term. Instead, the key is to invest in your business in order to expand income. There's usually tremendous pressure on medical groups to increase current income. That is to preserve distributions to the partners or shareholders. Too often, the average group president's knee-jerk reaction is to cut costs and to stop investing in the group's future. After all, it's current income, not the group's future, that's being measured and, as you've all read in management books, what's measured improves. For a year or two, the leader is a hero. Distributions go up, the leader's a genius. Or if distributions go down, the leader is lauded for having cut costs to at least preserve the current level of distributions. After all, if he hadn't cut spending, the distributions would be even lower. But within a few years, focusing on cuts instead of investment and growth results in rapid decline. Oh, my old firm, the one with that boss who wanted us to use Bix, within less than a year, they closed up shop. Why use a red team? I was reading in the paper about an investment bank that uses a red team to vet its electronic security. A red team is a group of individuals sponsored by an institution whose role is to try to attack the institution. In the case of the investment bank, they sponsored hackers to break into the bank's own computer system. Red teaming is a concept that's used in the military. War games. It's used in collegiate and professional football to describe non-starting players who pose as opponents in practice to find the weaknesses in the main team's game. You should use the same concept in your medical practice or healthcare business, in fact, in any sort of business. For instance, medical groups with exclusive contracts with facilities can use a red team of players from within your group or even of experts from outside of your group to attempt to attack your business or its business model. In other words, your red team will show you where you need to improve your defenses. The same notion can be applied in many other contexts within healthcare. From office practice physicians who can use secret shoppers to see how easy or difficult it is to schedule an appointment and to see how patients are being treated when they arrive at your office. We all have a lot of room for improvement, but I'm not assuming that you're damaged. What I'm saying is that we are often blind to our own weaknesses. So assign someone to play the competitor, to find those weaknesses, and to help you make improvements. Sure, it's work, but it's much preferable to an actual competitor engaging in those efforts for itself and then taking your business. Why you need to hack yourself. Do you remember the first time that you heard a playback of your recorded voice? You were probably surprised. Is that really how I sound? Yes, it is. As if audio isn't harsh enough, I remember the first time we shot one of these wisdom applied videos. I was convinced that the saying that the camera adds five pounds was a lie. It must be 15. 
The same thing's true about your medical practice or healthcare business. In fact, not only is it very difficult to know what it sounds and looks like to outsiders, that's your patients, customers, referral sources, and business associates, it's difficult for you to know what's actually going on inside of your business. You're just too close to it. You're too acclimated and you're too busy to notice. If you think about it, we've all seen examples of this. The medical group that loses its exclusive contract, it happened without warning. The practice that stops getting referrals from Dr. X, she just stops sending me patients. Or the medical group that has an internal revolt. No one complained about anything. But there's a really elegant way to have your eyes and ears opened. Then, armed with an accurate image of reality, you can take any necessary corrective action. I'm talking about the use of a red team, one or more individuals drawn from outside or even from inside of your group or business who are charged with trying to find your weaknesses. As you might have realized, so-called white hat hackers, those hired by a company to attempt to breach its own IT systems, are a form of red teaming that we read about in the popular and business press. Within healthcare, Depending on your practice or business, the red team's tactics might range from posing as patients to riding shotgun with your billers to devising a faux plan to steal your hospital contract. You can assign someone from within your practice to play on the red team. Even better, you can assign someone from the outside to play that role. Or you can continue to have a blind spot. Sure, it's work to ferret out the truth, but it's much preferable to an actual competitor, whether from the outside or from the inside, engaging in those efforts and then taking your business. Hi, it's Mark Weiss again. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast album on managing your medical group. For a plethora of other complimentary information and resources, check out our website at weisspc.com. You'll find books, podcasts, articles, and videos all designed to help you improve your practice, your business, your future. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at markweiss at weisspc.com or by dialing 310-843-2800. In the meantime, stay well, Stay strong, stay strategic. Mm-hmm.